This is Curl Up with a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tail with Gwen Cooper. I am, of course, Gwen Cooper, your host, and delighted, as always, to be here with you today, back from vacation, a very, very brief vacation, um, only about five days. Uh, and I'm also, actually, before I even get into anything else, delighted to be able to report that while I was on vacation and not anxiously scouring my emails which is, I guess, how these things always happen. But while I was distracted by other things, I officially got the formal paperwork returning the rights for Love Saves the Day to me, and also the UK and Commonwealth rights for Homer's Odyssey, which means that within the next month, there's going to be a, a like like the first week in September, first or second week in September, I should say. Um, so within the next five to six weeks, there is going to be a new edition of Homer's Odyssey available in the United Kingdom, also in Australia, New Zealand, not in Canada. Canada still falls under United States copyright, at least under the for the purposes of my contract. Um, but there's going to be a new edition of Homer's Odyssey available in those countries. And it's going to contain a new afterword. I should say to all of you listening in the States, the only real difference is going to be the afterword. It's going to be a slightly different afterword in this new edition because it is an even newer edition than the first afterword that I wrote for the paperback edition of Homer's Odyssey here in the United States. It's going to have the same cover as the United States cover, which I always thought was a I, I was I just loved the US cover of the book so much and so I always thought it was kind of a mistake that the British publisher decided to go another way with the cover art. But the the, the bigger point that I'm making is that if you are in the United States, um I hope you are not too upset about the fact that you are not also getting this new edition because it really is going to be virtually identical to the US edition that you already have plentiful access to. Um, and the main reason why this is so exciting for me and hopefully for some of my readers in the United Kingdom is that this is going to be the first time in over a decade that you can get a new copy of Homer's Odyssey in that area. So I'm very, very excited about that. And of course, everybody everywhere in the whole world is going to have access to the new edition of Love Saves the Day, which is going to come out around the holiday season. Um, and that is regardless of where you are in the world, you will have this new edition to Love Saves the Day. It's going to have a new cover and a not so much a sequel, but like a, a chunky follow up story about Prudence's ongoing adventures is also going to be a part of this book. I'm already working on it. It is very exciting. And yeah, so good stuff, big stuff coming up. And, you know, again, those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a while know that I've been stressing about this for a long time. I actually put the wheels in motion to get the UK rights to Homer's Odyssey reverted back to me um, back in January. 
So this has been a long time coming. Obviously, the the wheels of progress in publishing grind very, very slowly. It is a slow industry, um, which is probably the one thing that I, I find consistently p- frustrating about publishing because I like to move quickly. And when I think of something, I like to do it and then move on to the next thing. Um, but publishing is a very slow moving industry. And so yet yeah, just to get this letter saying that a book that has been out of print for more than a decade in a certain country, um, that, I, that I can have the rights to it back, has taken the better part of of eight months, uh, but it is done, and I'm very excited. And as I said, it happened when I was on vacation. Actually, the first day, like we had just landed, I had just turned back on my phone. I had just turned my phone back on. Um, after the plane landed, I was still on the, the the runway in Jamaica when I got the email, and it was uh, very exciting. And uh, that's how these things always happen, right? You you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you're watching, and you're so anxious. And the second you stop thinking about it, that's when it happens. And so, yeah. And so that made it, of course, a very pleasant vacation in Jamaica overall. Although, one thing, and this is something that's been cropping up, I, I realized um, a lot in my travels over the past year. So let me first say that that I have taken, or, or you know, I've done a lot more traveling over the course of the past year than I typically do in a year. Um, and this was not, as is the case with many people, like revenge travel because we had been cooped up for so long because of the pandemic. It was more just the way things worked out. There was one trip we took that I guess was our, we haven't gone anywhere in over a year. And and that was a tropical vacation um, that we took, not this past May, but a year ago, May. Uh, but other than that, it, it's just been, you know, it was Lawrence's birthday, so we 60th birthday, so we went on a trip for a 60th birthday. I had some work-related trips and uh, things like that. Um, but anyway, I will also say that I have been on very few tropical vacations. Um, I've been on five tropical vacations ever in my whole life. And of course, I grew up in Miami Beach, which was, you know, the kind of place that other people came to have their tropical vacations. So going on a beach vacation when you live on Miami Beach, I mean, I obviously there are people who do that, but it just never struck me as a, what's the word I'm looking for, as, as perhaps the best possible use of my limited travel dollars. So all of my big tra- you know, uh, tropical vacations have been taken since Lawrence and I got together nearly 20 years ago. Um, the last one before this one, we and I talked about that a little bit um, on this show at the time that we took the trip. So we went to it was a small private island off the coast of or, you know off the British Virgin Islands. And when I say a small private island, let me just it, it was not like a billionaire's private island kind of thing. It's actually a nature preserve on a very small island, and they allow a limited number of guests so that they have the money to keep up the the nature and wildlife preserve. And so there are some beautiful unspoiled beaches and lots of really interesting wildlife that you are not to touch or interact with. Um, but you also don't get a lot of the amenities, like, like there's no room service, there's no swimming pool, there's, they have, um, pl- you know, bars stocked with plenty of alcohol and mixers, but there are no bartenders. 
There's no televisions in the rooms. So you're, you're, you're basically going to, to enjoy a beautiful, pristine beach and, and to see some cool wildlife and to know that you are, that the money you're spending is, is helping to maintain this preserve. Um, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's that, it's, it's kind of a rustic sort of a feeling overall. I mean, I loved it and it was great and I would definitely recommend it to somebody who likes that sort of thing. But if what you want is to lie around a pool and get room service and have bartenders and waiters bring you drinks, it is not that kind of vacation. Um, the other tropical vacations that Lawrence and I've taken have been more like that. And this one that we just took, it was at a Sandals. It was the second time that I have been to a Sandals. The first time was in St. Lucia. And this actually kind of brings me back to to what I wanted to talk about. So we went to Sandals in St. Lucia. This was back in 2014. And the property was, I mean, I, I hate to use a word like overrun, but but I think it I, I think that's a fair word to use. It was pretty much overrun by feral cats. And let me say, if it had just been that there were a lot of feral cats, that would have been completely fine by me. What was upsetting, what was disturbing, is that they were so obviously uncared for, and so many of them were obviously in very bad health. I mean, you know, kittens with eye and with visible eye infections, um, adults with mange. It, it was, it was. I, I honestly don't understand how. It was allowed to go on for so long. How does it not bother even guests who don't care that much about cats or don't care at all about cats? I, What part of witnessing animal suffering makes for a relaxing vacation? We were there for a week. I think it was eight days. Um, and let me, let me just say also up front that St. Lucia, like most countries in the Caribbean, is a very, very poor country. And I understand when I travel. Um, that countries that have trouble sustaining their human population at, at a level of care that we would consider acceptable in terms of food, shelter, medical care, are certainly not going to be able to do so for their animal population as well. And fair enough. Um, my complaint, I, I was not looking at these animals in horror thinking, how could these St. Lucians allow this to go on? But I did have to wonder how sandals... Um, which certainly charges quite a lot of money, even in the off season, how they could allow this to continue on their property. And at the time, it was very upsetting. And it was in the early, it, so this was in 2014. It was less than a year after Homer died. It was in the early days of Homer's social media community, which somewhat ironically really um, grew exponentially after he passed away. And through that community, I was able to to find actually a rescue organization in St. Lucia. I affected a meeting between the head of that organization, the manager of the Sandals property, and myself. I was really only there because it had been my idea to put it together, but also because um, in the wake of Homer's passing, there had been something of a surge in, in book sales and sales of merchandise and, and things like that. And, you know, again, publishing is a slow business. They they pay out slowly. But right around the time that we had taken this vacation, I had, um, let's say, an extra lump sum of money 
money that that I had because Homer had died and and book sales had gone up. And I never really, you know, I, I had been wondering what I was going to do with it. I had always planned to donate it. It did not feel like money that was right to keep. And, you know, it was not like a huge life-changing amount of money, but, you know, low to mid four figures, let's say. And I ended up giving that money to this rescue organization in St. Lucia with the understanding that it would become the seed money for a TNR program and, and you know, veterinary care for the cats who are on this sandal property. I have to be honest in saying that that I left and I never really followed up with them intentionally because I I, I didn't want to know, honestly. They're, they're, it just seemed like there was so little that I could realistically do. Um, while I was there, the organization did come and, and begin trapping the cats. And so I was cautiously optimistic that that this was work that would continue and that the sandals property would would now that they were aware that this was actually a problem, would, would continue to work with this organization. Um, but I don't really know. So, you know, and, and that was the last time that I was at a Sandals in, until a few days ago. And I obviously, it, it, you know, again, I don't take a lot of tropical vacations to begin with, and it did not leave a great taste in my mouth, as it were. Um. And once again at this property, and I will not, it was not like it was in St. Lucia. I mean, that, that really, it, it was horrifying. I, I genuinely don't understand how people could be on vacation in the midst of this. And, and I mean, I'm talking like you're, you're sitting and you're eating and, and cats with, you know, eyes all but crusted, completely crusted over with scabs and sores are sitting, you know, and, and so skinny, their bones are poking through their skin, are sitting next to you at tables while you're eating, begging for food. And I mean, this was not just me. I am routinely begged, you know, animals routinely beg for food for me. They can tell them a sucker. That's just the deal. But this was not, it was not just me. And I, I'm outraged anew that, that nothing was was done and that people seemed to tolerate it. it. Just very, very upsetting. Anyway, so fast forward to now, and we were at this property in Jamaica. It was not like it was in St. Lucia. There were maybe, but there were some feral cats there. There were like half a dozen kittens. I'm going to guess they were of the same litter because they all seemed to be about the same age, maybe six or seven months old. Um, skinny, but not painfully so. And and maybe one older cat who I saw, maybe maybe she was their mama cat. I, I'm honestly not sure. Um, and and these are cats, you know, th- there were only a few of them. They did not appear to be in, in bad health. Obviously, they are well fed by by tourists and people who come to stay because they they know to to ask you for food. Basically, I would go out at five o'clock every morning. Uh, to to reserve pool chairs for Lawrence and me or beach chairs um, because that I guess is what you have to do at these resorts because this is what people do but nobody gets up as early as I do certainly not on vacation so it always feels like having a superpower you know the fact that I get up between 4 30 and 5 every morning um, but anyway so I'd be walking through the resort with you know towels and paperback books and and you know trailed by three or four anxiously mewing kittens who obviously have learned to ask tourists for food. And this would be, you know, right around the time of of day in those pre-dawn hours when cats tend to be the most active. So while I was there, I did learn to to bring food to dispense to them. But, 
you know, so so here's the thing about me, though. And again, I, I do want to emphasize these cats were not in any visible distress. There was nothing that made me feel where I would be justified in in taking some sort of action like I did back in St. Lucia, um, which, again, was, was just a horror show. Um, but I realized two things about myself. Well, actually, I'm going to say three things. The first is that it just seems through some combination of circumstances – all of the vacations that I have taken in the past year, all of the trips, I should say, that I've taken in the past year, with the exception of, of that trip to that to that nature preserve in the Caribbean, the, the wildlife preserve, um, the trip that I took to Greece and then to Albania, and then the trip that we took to the Middle East, and, and now this trip to Jamaica, there just seems to be an ongoing theme of... of Traveling to places where cats and dogs are neglected and, you know, kind of exist in large numbers on the streets or, or in common areas where, where people are spending a lot of time, just a lot of, of stray cats and dogs. Um, of course, Albania, for those of you who've been keeping up with me for a while, you know that the reason I was in Albania was to lead a fundraising effort on behalf of those animals in Albania. So so that at least made a certain amount of sense. But yeah, just a lot of, of stray cats and dogs on my travels lately, more so than honestly I am have really been used to, although I'm not necessarily such an adventurous traveler. And I've tended to go to a lot of large international cities that are, are like the large cities here in the United States, where, of course, there are stray cats and feral cats and dogs. Um, but there are also, let's say, th there's some sort of robust infrastructure, um, whether it's animal care and, you know, some combination of animal care and control and then volunteer organizations that address that issue and do so with some um, conscientiousness and efficiency. So you are not walking the streets of Chicago like you might walk the streets of Athens seeing stray cats all over the place or, you know, New York or Oklahoma City or for that matter, Stockholm or London or Paris. Um, Rome is a little bit more in between and I've not been to Rome in, in many years, but there are so many organizations at uh, the Guattari they're called, and, and that's uh, Italian for cat women, basically. And so there are organizations that do take care of the feral cat populations that tend to congregate among the ruins. Um, so you see cats, but they are cats who are being, and, and they don't belong to anybody per se, but they are nevertheless um, well-fed and, and well-cared for. Um, but yeah, so I realized that, that I've, you know, been taking a, a lot of trips lately where I have been seeing a lot of uncared for domestic animals. And the second thing that I realized about myself is that it is impossible for me to, to see that without feeling anxiety. And the anxiety that I feel, it, it is compassion for the animals. It, it is, it is the, you know, it, certainly the case that I am upset to witness their neglect and suffering. But I also, the other thing that I realized is that I, I can't do it without wondering what, if anything, I should be doing. Because to to witness the suffering and, and not do anything 
just feels wrong and like inside every cell of my body. And yet, what can I do as a visitor? What is it even right for me to do? And how do I ensure that I am not interfering in a way that, that leaves the animals worse off than they would have been had I never interfered? I mean, honestly, for all I know, at St. Lucia, they rounded up all those cats and put them down after I said something. I, I you know, which is why I made sure to involve a rescue organization before I said anything to the manager at the property and why I donated some seed money to get it started because I did not want that to be the first idea. Well, you know, let's let's just round up all these cats and and kill them. Um, but I have no way of knowing that that didn't happen after I left. And if, and I would like to think it did not, but it is always a danger. However well-meaning you are, when you get involved in a situation where you are a newcomer and you don't really know much or anything about how things work on the ground and you're going to be leaving soon. Um, and that is something that, that I do always try to be mindful of. And so the point being, so what ends up happening is that inside me, there's this tremendous wrestling going on where I'm, I'm worried about these animals and I'm worried about what I should be doing or what I can be doing. And I am also worried about doing nothing. I'm, I'm worried about doing something and I'm worried about doing nothing. And, and I'm worried for their unhappiness in general. And it does not make for a very relaxing vacation, I guess, is the point of this. Um, but it, it, it does make for an anxiety inducing one. And which brings me to the third thing that I realized, and and this is where I'm I'm I guess confessing my sins to those of you who are listening to this in the hopes that 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 you will absolve me of my guilt. Um, is that I'm I'm I think a little weary of traveling to places where I end up being consumed with worry for the local cat and dog or cat or dog population. Um, it, it seems like a really selfish and petty thing to complain about. But but I, I, I am, you know, I realized when I was in Jamaica, and again, these cats really, they looked, they were a little skinnier than I would have liked, but that might also have just been their builds. I, I don't know. But certainly they, they looked to be in good health. There were no visible Ill, illnesses or infections. Um, I saw them getting plenty of food while I was there. So they were not in any kind of bad shape. But I still worried for them because they they did not, you know, ultimately nobody seemed to be taking responsibility for them. And that is really what I would have liked to have seen because, you know, and again, and this is, oh, this is just like so the Jew in me. Like I'm sitting here thinking like, what if there's a storm? What if there's a hurricane? Anything could happen. What if one of them gets sick? Is there anybody who's going to notice that they get sick and, and get them any kind of care? And I worry. I'm a worrier. This this is my deal. And um, yeah, I mean, there, I'm not really going anyplace in particular, except that I found myself thinking while I was there like, I would just really love to to take a trip and not have to worry about any of this stuff. And then, of course, I felt like a bad person because whether or not I, I see these things, they are going on. And whether or not I worry about them, they are happening. Um, and so, you know, what I should be wishing for, right, is is for better care for these animals and not 
just to to not have to worry about it anymore. But that I, I think they call it compassion fatigue. And, you know, again, those of you who've been listening for a long time know that I used to work in nonprofit and that I stopped working in nonprofit because it, it became sort of, you know, I, I was somewhat burnt out emotionally. But that wasn't really compassion fatigue per se. It's just that it's difficult work and it doesn't pay a lot. And so your life is not easy really on any level while you're doing it. And I am incredibly glad that I did it. But I also feel good about the fact that now that I'm in middle age, my main, my primary role is fundraising, especially because I know how much funds are always needed by nonprofit organizations. Um, went back in my nonprofit days, I would have loved a dedicated fundraiser who who did nothing but but give me money. It would have been absolutely fine by me. Um, but yeah, I, I think I found myself for the first time experiencing like actual compassion fatigue, where I it, it just felt exhausting um, to to care to be so immediately emotionally invested. And I, I'm, you know, wondering if if anybody listening to this, I guess, has has felt that way. I, I don't really know uh, what I'm looking for here, except that, you know, again, in true Jewish fashion, um, you know, I I felt not only a lot of anxiety, but then guilt over my desire for the anxiety to go away. So so that's kind of where I am, um, which makes it sound like I did not have a relaxing vacation. I really do want to emphasize that overall. It was a very nice vacation. Had the situation with the cats been worse, it, it would have definitely been a much worse trip. But because the cats ultimately did seem to be in good health and good shape and and were being fed by lots of well-intentioned tourists and they were friendly cats and, um, you know, there was nothing to immediately distress me about them. So I, I was able for the most part to relax. Um, but it just, yeah, it just seems like a, like a lot in the past year, a lot of travels to places um, where animals don't fare so well. And and it is upsetting. Although ultimately, I guess this is what travel is, right? It's the opportunity to see how other people live and the ways in which they live are different from the ways in which we live. And some of those differences are good and some are bad and some are neither. They just are different. And this is one of those things, but it has certainly been an eye-opening year for me in that respect. And on that note, I'm going to take a brief break of about 30 seconds or so, but the podcast is not over yet. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, and stick around for more Curl Up With a Cattail. Thanks so much for sticking around. I am going to change the subject a little bit for this second half of the podcast um, to address an issue that that I kind of have wanted to talk about for a while and it actually something that is affecting someone who I know, a listener and supporter of this podcast who shall remain 
nameless, although I'm sure she will recognize herself in the story that I'm about to tell. Um, and, and it's actually, it's not so much a story as a situation and really a pretty simple one. Um, this is a woman, an, an older woman who lives alone and has a cat, um, a beloved cat whom she has lived with for some period of years, um, who has had some aggression issues. And uh, about a year, maybe a little bit longer ago, he attacked her and actually put her into the hospital for a couple of days. I don't mean sent her to the emergency room, right? Because we, we've all been to the emergency room. Um, maybe not all of us, but certainly plenty of us. And, and I am absolutely including myself here. I personally have been to the emergency room. Homer once sent me to the emergency room. Um, he was scrapping around with Scarlet and I was trying to break it up and I couldn't. And so I reached in with my hand to break it up, which I knew was a bad idea, but it was the best bad idea that I had at that point. And Homer bit my hand. He was very angry. And my hand promptly swelled up to the size of a catcher's mitt. And so I ended up in the emergency room. And you know what? It happens. Um, it was really a one-off in the course of my relationship with Homer. And it was not an attack per se. Um, you know, I was trying to pull him out of a fight, basically, and he did not want to get pulled out. And so he bit my hand. This is not what I'm talking about, though. I'm talking about unprovoked aggression from an animal. And, you know, this, and, and again, the, the, in the case of, of my friend with the cat, the cat attacked her and the damage was bad enough that she ended up in the hospital. I don't mean the emergency room. We mean like in the hospital, checked in, hospitalized, staying at the hospital for a couple of days. Um, there was a lot of blood. And recently it happened again. And her vet's opinion was that the cat might very well be suffering from dementia or some other you know, chronic mental condition that would make him act as he had acted. And so she chose to put the cat to sleep. She chose to euthanize him um, and has gotten some blowback on this online. She shared this in her social media accounts, um, you know, with her online community. Let me first say, and I'm going to be a little bit coarse here, I don't generally swear a lot on this podcast, but I will say that, and, and I'm sure this is going to come as no surprise to anyone, everyone know this, knows this, right? There are just a lot of assholes on the internet, pardon my language, but there are. And it is okay, I think, to be somewhat circumspect in your social media postings um, because no matter how generally supportive your community is, you are always going to encounter some jerks who are going to say jerky, hurtful things. You may not care, in which case share away. But if it's the kind of thing that's going to bother you, then it's okay to say, you know, I had to put my cat Steve to sleep rather than going into the details of, of what your reasoning was. Um, but having said that, I th that's not really what I wanted to address. Um, it's kind of a fraught issue. and. In the context of having an aggressive animal, it's, it's not always easy to know what to do, or maybe it is easy to know what to do, but it's hard to feel like it's the right thing because there really there's something very difficult, um, if not almost impossibly difficult, about euthanizing a physically healthy animal, physically healthy cat or dog whom you love. And 
But that is not the same thing as saying that it is never the appropriate course of action or it is never the right thing to do. Um, you know, I have to say, and this is what I told my friend, that my, my father, may he rest in peace, has always been my North Star on this particular issue because nobody was ever better with animals, uh, no one whom I, who I've known, than my father was. And, and I've written about this and talked about it a little, but, you know, we had dogs when I was growing up and all of the dogs that we adopted or fostered came from bad situations. And certainly that the tried their tempers um, and that may have been inclined to make them temperamental. My father was always believed, you know, he, that, that every dog wants to be a good dog and that, that every dog could be worked with or, or, or saved, let's say. But by the same token, he also firmly believed that an animal who attacks a person unprovoked is an animal that has to be put down. And, you know, not like you're pulling the, you know, one of us was pulling the dog's tail because we were little kids who didn't know any better and the dog snapped at us. I mean, I think everyone understands what I'm talking about. More like like my next door neighbor's pit bull who attacked me. Um, it was just one bite, but it was unprovoked and it was a bad bite and that injured me pretty severely. Um, that kind of it. Or in the case of this woman with a cat who, and again, I want to emphasize, put her in the hospital. Cats are not as large as dogs. We don't really think of them as attack animals. But cats can and sometimes do inflict real damage on people. Um, And especially in older people who are more prone to complications from injuries in the first place. You know, everyone has different opinions on this, and obviously there there is room for all kinds of particularities depending on the specific animal in question and the specific situation. But generally speaking, I would have to agree with my father on this one, that an animal that is aggressive, that injures people, that injure, whether it's an owner or a friend, um, that does so, that injures people badly and unprovoked is an animal who needs to be put to sleep. Um, and, and that's just, and it's not because that's an animal who deserves to be punished. Um, I I never think it's the animal's fault in a situation like this. I, I think fault is even the wrong word to use. It's, you know, animals are not people and they understand, they process information differently. They process stress and threats and perceived threats very differently than humans do. They do not have the tools at their disposal to communicate that we have. So they, they can't just talk it out before they resort to their teeth and their claws. That's not an option that's on the table for them. And, you know, in the case of the dog who lived next door to me, one of the things that that made it so awful for me was that I I knew that the dog who attacked me was doing it to protect his tiny human who was walking him. She was a woman my age. But, but very little, shorter than five feet tall. I'm five feet tall and she's shorter than I, than I am, which is a hard thing to imagine. And I, but I know he thought he was protecting his tiny little human who he loved. And it was a very unfortunate situation for all concerned. He wanted to be a good dog. But the thing of it is, the next time it could be a toddler. The next time it could be somebody's grandmother who's not going to bounce back from the injury as well as I did. You don't know who or what it's going to be. 
the next time. And and this is where God forgive me for saying this, but but shelters and rescue organizations are are too filled with animals who are never going to attack anybody, but are also never going to find the good and loving home that they deserve. And it's not a question of this animal is mean and doesn't deserve a loving home. It's not that at all. Um, but sometimes, you know, I have spent a large part of my life committed to animal rescue, and it is my very firm belief that every animal is a life worth saving. Having said that, though, um, you know, some animals are, are not going to be as good in a home or around people as other animals are. And unfortunately, in the context of an aggressive animal, I, I you know, one who attacks unprovoked, you don't really have a lot of good alternatives, I think, to euthanizing the animal. I think it would be very irresponsible to try to rehome the animal or to give him to a shelter. I think it is equally irresponsible to keep the animal in the same circumstances that created the first or second or third act of aggression, um, you know, to keep that animal in the same home with the same people, um, with all the same surroundings, there's obviously some something is not working for this animal, whether it's it's being in close confines or whatever it is, and you may never know what the trigger is. There may not even really be a trigger. You know, again, it's you're you're really delving into the the specifics of the personality of an individual animal, which are are even less knowable, I think, than they are with humans, and and they can be pretty unknowable with humans, right? Nobody is a hundred percent predictable, not even to ourselves. Everybody who's listening to this at some point in their life has done something or reacted with a level of aggression in a situation that has surprised themselves. And afterwards, you wow, I didn't realize I was so angry. I didn't realize I felt so threatened. Um, so it, it is exponentially that much harder to know with an animal. And I, I, I feel like most of the people listening to this probably understand what I'm saying and, and agree with it as well. Um, Again, I, I never think it is the animal's fault, but some animals do just have to be put down. Um, but I think I'm, I'm really saying this not to persuade anybody who's listening um, to, to agree with what my friend did, but because many of you listening may someday find yourself in this situation where you have to make this choice and even if you don't doubt that it's the right choice to make, I, I think it's still very natural to feel very, very guilty. Um, it's, it's a special kind of heartbreak when you not only lose a beloved animal companion, but you lose a beloved animal companion because of an act of aggression against you or somebody else. Um, and it can feel like, like, a, like a real betrayal of the trust in the relationship you had with that animal to put that animal down. Um, but it is in fact the, it, it is, you know, part of the relationship that we have with these animals. You know, they, they, we get so much there. There's so many incredible benefits that we get from our relationships with these animals. Um, but I'm going to sort of paraphrase the with great power comes great responsibility and say that with great love comes great responsibility, especially when it comes to our animal companions. And the truth of the matter is that an aggressive animal, even if they never turn that aggression on you, um, 
you're running into the exponential risk that they will, will someday turn that aggression against someone who will hurt them back. And that is going, you know, you have to think through the very possible, if not probable scenarios. This is an animal who could put you into the hospital or inflict an injury upon you that you could not recover from, and then you would not be able to care for the animal. This is an animal who could gravely injure some innocent bystander who does not deserve to be injured and injure them in a way that they don't recover from well. This is an animal who may not injure somebody else so badly, but may himself become gravely injured. Um, you know, people retaliate and other animals retaliate, whether it's an act of self-defense or after the fact is some sort of an act of retribution. You know, it, it, it is one of those situations where there is no great answer. And sometimes euthanasia is the best bad answer that there is. It's it's the best bad option. There are nothing but bad options. And you have to pick the one that that is the least bad. And I, I guess my point in this is for anyone who may find themselves someday in that situation, please know that that it is still a loving thing that you are doing. It is still, it is an act of love as well as an act of responsibility because you are ultimately responsible, not just legally, but morally. You are responsible for the things that your cat or that your dog does um, to other animals and to other people. The, the buck stops with you. And we do not get all of the incredible benefits that we get from our relationships with these animals for free. It is not cost free. And it's not just that we spend money on food and veterinary care. It, it, it There is also the cost in terms of the responsibilities that we bear. We have to make decisions. And sometimes we are lucky enough to go all the way through without ever having to make a truly tough decision. Um, sometimes we are not that lucky and the decisions are not that clear cut or they are clear cut, but they don't feel good. They they feel as bad as as actually bad decisions feel. And so I guess this is for my friend if she's listening. I I, I know you are grieving. I know you are mourning. I, I know the loss of your beloved friend and I know how much you loved him is is tearing you up down to your soul and and my heart breaks for you and I I I know enough about that process to know that there's really very little that anybody can do for you um it, it is just something you have to go through and it and it just hurts unbearably until one day it doesn't until one day the the pain is bearable um and 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 that's what you have to look forward to and and I am sorry for you my friend I I really am but I I hope that you Never doubt that ultimately you did the right thing. And, and to anybody listening to this who finds themselves in a similar position, please do not beat yourself up with guilt or second guessing yourself. You know, this is just how the dice roll sometimes. And hopefully the next time you roll the dice, they, they will roll differently and in a better way. But I also still firmly believe that no matter how bad or heartbreaking the ending may be, that it was also always worth it to have that relationship in the first place. You know, not every relationship is going to end the way you want it to. And every relationship is going to end someday because none of us lives forever. You know, so sometimes we get good endings and sometimes we get bad endings. But the point is really not how it ends. It, that's almost incidental. It really is all the other stuff. It's it's all the day-to-day, -day, the, the bulk of the years, the months and the years of love 
that you are lucky enough to have. And, and that really is the thing that matters. And, and in the end, when there is nothing else left, it, it should be those memories that sustain you and not the memories of the end, um, good, bad, or indifferent, because that is still just one part and really a, a very small part of what your whole relationship was. And with that, I'm going to say goodbye for now, but only for another few days. So please, please be sure to join me next week for another all new episode. And that concludes this episode of Curl Up with a Cattail with Gwen Cooper. Don't forget to invite your feline loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, find out how to get your name and your cat's name included in my next book, or leave comments or questions for me to answer in future podcasts, head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me. And don't forget to hug your cat today.